Well, greetings, New Hope Church. It is so good to be with you today as we worship this great, holy God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Is he not worthy of praise? I mean, he is so good. He is so full of love for you and for me. Please hear that, friend, wherever you are today. If you're right here uh, on our campus or if you're joining us in our online community, you are so very loved, eternally loved by this great God and King. And him we honor, him we worship, and it is his word that we want to turn to here, this love letter called the Bible. I'm so thankful to be part of that with you. My name is Matthew. I just want to welcome all of you as we give attention to the precious word of God and we learn from his heart that we might be more like Christ and love well those around us. So let me pray right now, would you? Uh, join me. Father, thank you for just the privilege it is to worship you. And I ask in the name of Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit that you would meet us right now, that you would give us a word from your heart through this Bible that you've presented to us. Help us, O oh God, to uh, receive from you what you want to give to us today as you uh, Come in and change our hearts and grow us to be more like your precious son, Jesus. Lord, let us leave here different than when we arrived. Amen? That's what we want. So help us to be those people eager to receive what you give. And all God's people said together, amen, amen. So, you know what? I have questions for God, and you might also have questions for him. There are things that I ask him, things like, what were you thinking? Any of you ever asked God that question? Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that because I ask him that question. What were you thinking? Or, or why me? Has that been a question you've asked him? Or, Lord, why this thing? Or, Lord, what happened there? Now, understand, friends, questions are they're good. They're, they're normal they're natural, it's, it's uh, real to ask questions. For sure, philosopher, philosopher Lonnie Watson, uh, she, puts, she, she puts forward this statement about questions. You'll see it on the screens here. Just look with me here. We use questions, she writes, we use questions for many different reasons. Uh, to find out, to communicate, to show we care, to express ourselves, to expose others, to debate, to inspire, to engage in small talk, sometimes just to be heard. That ring true? These are the reasons we use questions, right? Well, you know what? I want you to be aware of something. It's a little bit uh, new for some of us here, new for some listening to my voice, and it is this. God asks questions as well. God has questions. He asks questions of his people. He asks questions of his prophets, of his priests, of the broken and blind, of, of the, um, uh, the laborers and the powerful. God has questions too. And in keeping with Lonnie's insights, uh, God, he asks questions to show that he cares to expose things, to inspire us, and so much more. 
And we're going to be exploring this in these many weeks ahead. Lord willing, up through Easter, we're going to be taking from God's word questions that God asks. Now, the very first question that God asks that we find in the Bible, very first question is in Genesis chapter 3. Very first question that we see that God asks, that God asks, the very first question God asks is in Genesis chapter 3. If you have a Bible in front of you, I'd encourage you to look with me there. So uh, Genesis chapter 3, this is very near the beginning of the whole human experience. And to absorb what's going on, we put ourselves right there in the Garden of Eden. And everything is good. Hear that. Everything is good. Adam and Eve are walking with God. This is good. Adam and Eve are walking with God and they are thriving, making their lives work together. They are fulfilling, hear me now, they are fulfilling the great mandate that God gives all of us in Genesis chapter 1. Did you know that there is an eternal mandate that God gives to us in Genesis chapter 1? It's for you. It's for me. Here's what it says. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Uh, when God made Adam and Eve, he made the first, our first parents, he says to them, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the ground. That is Adam and Eve's mandate and that is yours too, by the way. We are to rule over the created order with holiness, with wisdom, and with the power of the Most High God at our disposal. We're to steward the created order whether we are seasoned citizens or whether we are middle school kids, whatever our place is in life, we are stewards of the created order. Adam and Eve were doing this. They were walking this out. And then all of a sudden, blindsiding them, Satan confronts them. Listen to me. Satan confronts them and tempts them to believe that God isn't good. Satan confronts them, tempts them to believe that God isn't good. As a matter of fact, the first question that God asks is in Genesis chapter 3, but understand the first question ever asked in recorded biblical history is right there in the very first part of Genesis 3. We'll see it in a moment, but it's where Satan basically says, did God not say and he starts to distort the word of God. And we'll see it in a moment, but let me just make a comment here. I want you to all hear this, every one of you. If you're out in our online community, if you're right here, everyone hear this. For all of you parents with prodigals, and I talk to you, and I weep with you, and I pray with you, listen to me here. There is no more perfect environment than the Garden of Eden, and there is no more perfect parent, divine parent, than the Most High God of heaven and earth. And yet, and yet, despite that, his first children rebel. 
Listen to me, dear ones. You prodigal parents, listen to me. Don't buy the lie that it's you. Okay? You hear me? Don't buy the lie that it must be you. If God has rebel children. Well, listen to what the text says. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat? Of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. He didn't say that, by the way. Nonetheless, but the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Here we have Satan confronting them. He intrudes on their territory. Listen to me now very carefully. He intrudes on their territory, and he presents that very first question ever asked in recorded history. Did God not say? A full distortion of the word of God itself, of the character of God. And by putting that forward, he is suggesting to Adam and Eve that God isn't good, that God is holding back, that God may be manipulating them for his own uh, gain, and they are getting the short end of the stick. But he's also then casting a vision for a supposedly better future if they'll eat of the fruit of that tree. Let me pause. I need to ask you a question. Does this pattern of the enemy, does this pattern show up in your life? Now I want you to really think about this. Whether you are a follower of Jesus or even those of us who do follow Jesus, can you describe moments when your guard is down and the enemy shows up on the scene and invades your space and whispers, you know, God really isn't that good. You know, he's holding back on you. You know, he might not come through. And so really, you need to take matters in your own hands. I will tell you straight up, I have this pattern in my life. More often than I care to admit, I have my guard down and the enemy comes along and he whispers his words of woe, teasing me to believe that God is against me, that God doesn't have his best interest for me. Does this ring a bell? Any of us? And what I end up doing then is I give in. I give in. I buy the lie. I dabble in sin. I, I give in to the tempting voices of, of woe. And as I give in, I am in effect playing into what the Apostle John has penned in his first letter in the New Testament where he talks about how 
we so easily give in to the lust of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And this is exactly what Adam and Eve surrendered to. This is what they gave in to. Notice with me, Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Hard stop. Everything changes right there. They gave in. They fell. Nothing would be the same going forward. And I want you to see here with me, I want you to see here with me the profound destruction that ensues because of their choice to give in to Satan's lies. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, puts it this way. You don't need to turn there, but you might just listen to these important words. We've, we've voiced these a lot from this platform over the years. Therefore, Paul writes, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, notice this, so death spread to all people because all sin. The choice of Adam and Eve in effect, taints, haunts, and damns all of us. And if they were not the ones to have made the choice, I would have. Matthew St. John would have. And you would have so as well. And that is the testimony of the Word of God. But I want you to also see what it looked like very practically for Adam and Eve. Yes, there's this darkness and damnation, this, this sin, this, this destruction that comes upon the created order, this death as we just read from Paul. But I want you to see practically Adam and Eve's story here because it's also your story and mine. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7 and following. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Let's pause again. I want you to note with me what their instincts are here in the face of sin, in the face of their rebellion. Track with me here. Their first instinct is to be overcome with shame and because of that shame to try to cover themselves. Suddenly, they realize that they are naked. Prior to that, according to Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, uh, they were naked and unashamed. No embarrassment, total freedom. There wasn't this, this tainted sense of understanding about that. 
But now because of the rebellion, they're looking at themselves individually and at each other and shame overwhelms them. They are desperate to cover themselves. And you know, you and I do the same thing when, when we rebel against God, when we sin. One of our first instincts is to, is to cover ourselves. And what they've done right here, they, they, they start picking at the fig leaves in the, on, on the trees there in the garden. How inadequate is that? But they're that desperate to hide their shame. And make no mistake about it, friends, shame is a killer And it's one of the great weapons of the evil one, of Satan. So much of what he foments by way of sinfulness is so that we will just wallow in our shame and be stuck in this cycle of shame. Well, that's their first instinct. Their second instinct is to hide because of fear. And we see it in verse 7 there. They go and they hide among the trees. They're hiding. They're terrified now. They didn't know what fear was. But now they do because of their rebellion. And it motivates them to go hide. One of the great pastors of the modern era, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he offers these words. He says, regarding this, this passage of Scripture, Man's final tragedy, and you'll, you'll see it here in front of you. Man's final tragedy is that he refuses the one thing that can put him right. Running away from the only one that can truly bless him. That's what Eve and Adam do here. Out of fear, they run and they hide. They hide behind the trees. Let me ask you, how many of you listening to my voice today whether you're in your living room at home or you're right here in this big room on the campus, how many of you today are hiding from God? You may be here. You may be listening. You may be tuned in. But deep down, are you covering yourself and looking around in fear because of sin in your life, because of shame, Because of brokenness. How many of you are running today? And you know what? Listen to me now. It may be you ran right into this place and God wants to meet you. He has a word for you. He loves you. And he wants to meet you here today. If you've run into this place, if you've run into this moment, digitally even, God wants to meet you. He wants to meet me. He wants to meet us. Well, let me tell you something. Adam and Eve may have run into those woods and hidden behind the trees, but they can't run too far from God. Do you hear me? They can't run too far from God. As a matter of fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones goes on and he says this. He says, the back of the trees, I want you to notice this, the back of the trees belong to God quite as much as the front of the trees, all right? He owns those too. You can't run from him. You cannot run from him. And so it is according to the text. Well, verse 7 says, they noted that 
the Lord God was moving, walking in the garden. Verse 8, rather, says that, walking in the garden. In the cool of the garden. Listen to me here. God, understanding what was unfolding, he makes his way toward them. And he starts to look around at his trees. Back there, that's my tree. You're hiding. That's my tree. It's not your tree. And you know, the text says he walked in the cool of the garden. Now, I love this. Some scholars, listen to me now, some scholars say that that is a, a euphemistic way of speaking of twilight. Like the sun is set, the evening stars are beginning to rise. And uh, I, what I would say is this, before the darkness becomes greater, here notice this, before the darkness becomes greater, God was determined to find his beloved children, rebels though they are. All right? Did you hear that? If it is true he's walking, and the text says he's walking in the cool of the day, if it is true that that is a, a naturalistic reference to twilight, to dusk, before the darkness gets deeper, here you have God on the move. I'm going to get you before it gets too dark, child. Did you hear that? I'm going to get you before it gets too dark. Praise the Lord indeed. Praise the Lord indeed. And then, hear me now, listen. Then the question. Genesis chapter 3, verse 9. Look at it with me. The Lord God called and said, where are you? Now I want you to sit for a moment and let those words wash over you. Where are you? Where are you? David Guzik says it's the cry of an anguished father. Where are you? And you know, their answer could have been something like this. I'm ashamed. I'm terrified. Or it could have been something like this. Leave me alone. I like my sin. Or it could have been something like this. I'm so confused. I don't know what happened. I don't understand this. Or it could have been something like this. I just feel so destroyed right now, and I can't even breathe. And you know what? Here, listen to me. You know what the questions could have been from God to Adam and Eve? Notice this, friends. Notice what wasn't asked. What wasn't asked is, what in the world did you do? What were you thinking? What kind of choice is that? Are you nuts? Now, those are the questions we ask people that let us down. Those are the questions we ask our kids. Those are the questions our parents have asked us. Those are the questions we, we whisper about regarding our friends when we see them screw up. We don't tell them that because we're too Minnesota nice, but we're thinking it. Right? And because we ask those questions, we expect God to ask those questions. But he doesn't ask those questions. He says, where are you? 
Friend, do you hear that? Do you hear how personal that is? The intimacy of it. The care. Where, where are you? Child, where, where are you? I, uh, I want to invite you to think about four observations here. As we just let this question wash over us, okay? Oh, sister and brother, please let this question wash over you. Where are you? Listen to Jesus. Listen to the Lord. Listen to the Spirit say this to you. Where are you? However you showed up here today, however you're tuning in, whatever your circumstances, where are you? Child, where, where are you? Now here, here are some observations, four of them. You'll, you'll see them here on the screens. Here's the first one. And I want you to really take hold of this, okay? This is very important. In God's eyes, please hear me. Please hear me. The person is always more important than the problem. Did you hear that? The person is always more important than the problem. More important than the motive or the mistake. Now the motive and the mistake may matter. I'm not saying there shouldn't be a conversation at some point about those things. As a matter of fact, as Genesis chapter 3 unfolds, we see God has an honest conversation with Adam and Eve about everything that unfolded. But notice the first, listen to me, please hear me, the first instinct of God is to focus on the person, not the problem. Because he loves the person. He created the person. That person is his creation. And he cares deeply. And by the way, that's an incredible example for you and me as we deal with the people in our own world. Co-workers or kids. Parents or politicians. Whatever it is. Whoever it is. Let it be that our first priority is the person, not their problem. The person, not their mistake or their motive. And then let us also choose to bask in that reality for ourselves. You and I, when we sin, when we fall, we are so consumed with the pain and the shame and the fear with the mistake and the motives, and we're just, we're just churning, trying to figure it all out. And before the mighty God asks about any of that, he just wants to know how you are and where you are, and if he can have access to you, okay? Number two, God's question invites me to see my distance between myself and the one true source of my safety, my satisfaction, my solace, and my salvation. The question, where are you, it invites me to see, oh, that implied has some 
query about proximity. How proximate am I to, to the one who is my chief satisfier? How close am I to him? All right? Do you hear that? It's, it's, a, it's a provocative question for us to wrestle with. Oh, where am I? Lord, you're asking me where, where are you, child? You're asking me where I am. Uh, wow, I've kind of gotten a little far from you, haven't I? I'm, I'm a, I've removed myself a bit from you as the true source of all my desires and, and affections and, and interests and hopes and dreams and purposes and, and the, the true source of my satisfaction and, and my, my security, my safety, my solace, my salvation. And, and by asking the question, then it, it causes us to reckon with the distance, okay? So that then, in all humility, we can cast ourselves before him and say, come close to me. Close the gap. And what we know is our Father runs to us, and then we get to run to him. A third observation. Oh, friend, please hear this. If you don't hear much else today, hear this. You'll see it up here. When in the throes of shame and fear, God moves toward us with grace and care. Do you hear that? When in the throes of shame and fear, when shame and fear are the storm raging around us, causing us to hide behind the trees, God draws near to us with grace and care. He goes to the back of the trees and he finds us and he envelops us with his love. As a matter of fact, <clears throat> in the Christmas story, and we just went through this here these recent weeks, we read these words from Matthew chapter one. An angel says to Joseph about the birth of Jesus, Mary, your beloved, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord God had spoken by the prophet when the prophet Isaiah said, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Hear me, friends. In the throes of our shame and fear, Emmanuel, God with us. Do you hear that? He's with us. The enemy wants to say, he has abandoned you. He's left you to rot in your shame and fear. But Emmanuel means even in the throes of our sin and despair, he who bled for us is right there. And he's looking for us and he's saying to us, where are you? Where are you? Number four, fourth observation. Jesus makes all things new. Do you believe that? I want you to hear this, friends. I want you to imagine this with me here. This is so great. I love this. It's one of my favorite features of this whole chapter. I want you to notice this. Right here, you have God saying to his erring children, where are you? 
And we might imagine, we see the back and forth in the ensuing verses. We, we can, well, God, I, I was afraid of this, and the woman this, and you, you know, okay, there's this back and forth. But it starts with, where are you? And you can imagine it is as if God is saying, oh, okay, well, now that you said all that, let me tell you about my son. Notice Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It says this, as God is processing with the enemy himself and Adam and Eve, the situation, the plight, the terror of it all, God says to the evil one, I'm going to put enmity between you and that woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he will bruise he, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It is a prophecy of Jesus who's going to come and crush that serpent. And it is a prophecy that even in this erring woman, Eve, through her progeny, hers and Adam's, there will rise up a Savior. And so it's as if, where are you? Oh, there you are. Oh, this is the problem. Oh, this is what's gone down. Oh, let me tell you about my son. Do you hear that? And so it is, friends, in the face of all of our sin and shame and fear and despair, when God Almighty says to you, his beloved boy or girl, where are you? It will have as the natural conclusion, let me tell you about my son, this Jesus who lived a sinless life was betrayed by a friend, arrested by the authorities, tortured and crucified, hung naked on a Roman cross where he died and shed his blood to cover us all that we could be forgiven. And three days later, he rose from the dead. And then he ascended into the heavenly places, and right now he's at his father's side. And he's saying things like, Abba, yeah, she's hiding behind the trees, but you and I see her, right? And we love her. And you know what? She's covered in my blood. And so let us, let us just remind her of her identity. Let us remind her who she is. Or, Father, see that one right there? He doesn't know us. He's hiding behind the trees. He's scrambling to cover himself. Oh, let's do a wonder work so as to show him all does not need to be lost if he would only cry out to us. To the triune God of heaven and earth. And I think as we do cry out and bask in the splendor of this Jesus whose death and resurrection and ascension, and by the way, his glorious return means that sin and death and the devil no longer have the final word. Oh, our response would be, Lord, you saw my condition and had a plan for my heart, or a plan from the start. Your son for redemption, the price for my heart. Oh, God. And the where are you? Fueled by an eternal love. It's that same love that had that Jesus who was prophesied on that final night of his life gather with his disciples in an upper chamber 
there in the city of Jerusalem. And he and the disciples were celebrating the Passover feast. It's a great festival for the Jewish people. Celebrating when God had liberated them from their slavery in Egypt so long before. On this night, Jesus did some things a little unusual relative to the nature of the festival and the ritual. He took some bread and he lifted it up and he thanked his father for it. Then he broke it. He passed the pieces to his disciples. And he said, eat of this in remembrance of me. He understood that in a matter of hours, his body would be broken on that cross. And he wanted them to forever remember that. And every time they take bread, they remember the, the broken body of Jesus. And I've said it so many times, it's remarkable to me that this Jesus who is sinless and holy became broken so that all of us wicked sinners could be made whole. It's remarkable, friends. And then he, later in the meal, took a goblet of wine and he thanked his Father in the heavens for it and he passed it to the disciples. It was a common cup and they drank of it together at the table. And uh, as they were drinking it, Jesus said something to them. He said, you know, this is the new covenant in my blood. Drink of it as often as you will in remembrance of me. What in the world? Well, what the disciples couldn't grasp, but Jesus knew, was in a matter of hours, his blood would be shed on that Roman cross. And a new thing would unfold. His blood was sufficient to forever cleanse all of us sinners. Those who hide, those who cover their shame, those who run in fear, those who sneak behind the trees and hope not to be found because they're scared. You've got the elements with you there. As you're led here these few moments, take them. Remember the broken body, the shed blood. There's no more precious commodity in all of time and space than the shed blood of Jesus. Breathe deeply. Confess your sin. Thank him for his mercy. Thank you that the father that says, where are you? Concludes that question with, let me tell you about my son who makes all things new.